Well, tonight, as uh, you've probably realized, we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I wanted to speak on this because I remember quite a few years ago reading through the Bible uh, in a year, which I would recommend if you want to get a whole view of, of, uh, of what God's Word says and find some things you've never seen before. And this was one of the things that I had never seen before. I, I mean, I don't know if I'd ever read it. It certainly had never come across to me. And I was just amazed particularly by the second half of this passage and by the way that David prays and the way that David claims the promises of God. So that's what, I, um, that's what I want to look at, God's promise and David's prayer. And um, thanks to Len and Margaret for reading, um, Len gave a rather good introduction, which I don't think I need to repeat. So um, suffice to say that uh, Len's absolutely right, um, that uh, what's happened coming up to this is that um, David has been anointed, first of all, king of Judah, and then a whole seven and a half years later, uh, king of Israel, Uh, in uh, Hebron. Then he takes Jerusalem, which is a pretty good strategic move, actually, because Jerusalem, uh, again, as Len said, was a neutral uh, city at that point. Uh, It was occupied by the Jebusites. Um, It wasn't Israelite. It wasn't um, from Judah. So David's idea of bringing the whole kingdom together um, is that he takes that city. It's also very strategic. It's up on a hill. It's well fortified. David um, puts in more fortifications, builds himself his own palace, um, in the process forges an alliance with his northern neighbors up there in uh, Tyre in the south of Lebanon. And, um, and then, as Len says, he brings up the ark to Jerusalem. And I think that's um, pretty much at the heart of our story. Um, If you look in the parallel passage in Chronicles, and and, and you might be aware of this, but a lot of 2 Samuel is repeated in 1 Chronicles, but with a slightly different, more liturgical, more priestly perspective to it, rather than just plain history. And 1 Chronicles 13 shows us, actually, that probably bringing up the ark to Jerusalem is one of the first things that David thinks about. And he says, let us bring the ark of God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. And the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all of the people. And you'll remember that the Ark of the Covenant was at the heart of worship in the tabernacle, the tent that God had commanded Moses to build in the wilderness. And it had been captured by the Philistines. And they sent it back sharpish when they discovered that they all broke out into plagues all over the place. Wherever um, Philistine city they sent it to, more plagues broke out. Um, and it ended up in the house of a guy called Abinadab, um, and he was really blessed um, in having that ark, and he actually held on to it for 20 years. So clearly David was thinking about how to establish worship in Jerusalem to bring God's blessing to the entire nation, just like Abinadab had been blessed, and to further unite Israel by making Jerusalem an important center. And, and you could see that as a cunning strategic move, but, but, but I think uh, this idea of Israel being blessed of Israel being united and the establishment of a strong kingdom were all part in parcel in David's mind of God being honored and God being worshipped. And he very much saw, and, and we'll see this, that that was what God was calling him to do. So you can't separate um, David as a strong strategic and military leader with his um, desire to see God honored. Now, So he's bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. At this point, um, and indeed at one or two other points in David's life, uh, David forgot to ask God what to do first. That wasn't a terribly um, good idea. 
But that's what he did. And, and as we saw, the people thought that it was a good idea to bring up the uh, ark, so he thinks he knows what needs to be done. He gets hold of a nice new cart, nobody's used, pops the ark on it, off they go. Um, with what sounds, if you look in uh, 2 Samuel uh, 6, I think it is, um, a rather ad hoc uh, worship band that he pulls together for the purpose, uh, made up of whoever happened to be at hand at the time. And he forgot that according to Numbers 4, the ark was to be moved only by Levites. They had to carry it using special poles that went through some rings on the side of the ark. So the inevitable happens, the oxen stumbles, Uzzah, who was one of the sons of this guy Abinadab, who'd been looking after the ark, reached out to steady it, and God struck him down. So that put rather a dampener on the proceedings, uh, to say the least, and um, so the ark was parked at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for a while, and already, interestingly, David's beginning to see where he'd gone wrong, because Obed-Edom was a Levite, in fact, he was one of the tribe of uh, one of the clans of Levites that were especially appointed to bear the ark of, with these poles on their shoulders. So he's beginning to get the idea. And then, if you look in one Chronicles, he spends three months researching, training Levites, training musicians, putting a tent up in Jerusalem for the ark. And um, eventually, uh, three months later, with great rejoicing and a decent worship band that's properly trained, um, read about this, it's interesting, with skillful musicians, um, they brought the ark up to Jerusalem. And so that brings us to um, the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, David's about 37, Israel's united, enemies under control, nice house, Probably more than the usual complement of wives, if you have a look, but we'll, we'll gloss over that. Um, good relations with his northern neighbours. Uh, the ark's installed in a special pent, a tent, uh, which he built for the purpose. And it's time to embark on the final stage of the master plan to establish worship in Jerusalem. So David calls Nathan in and says, here I am living in a palace of cedar, and the ark of God remains in a tent. Well, Nathan gets the message, doesn't have to say any more. God wants to build a permanent house for, sorry, David wants to build a permanent house for God, the final stage of the master plan. Well, Nathan likes that idea. He gives it his approval, and as a prophet, tacitly, he's giving it God's approval as well. Well, actually, God has some other ideas. And we see that in a vision that God gives to Nathan. And, and if you read it, it's, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? There's a huge amount of irony at the beginning there of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And do, do follow it uh, there in your Bibles. Um, the Lord says to Nathan and, and therefore to David, um, I haven't ever dwelt in a house. I didn't have a house. All the time that um, people were going through, the Israelites were going through the wilderness. In fact, I never said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And by implication, and I'm not saying it now either. So it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful response, I think. So God doesn't need a house, at least not at the moment. And more importantly, I think, God doesn't need David to bless him at the moment. He's got even more blessing that he wants to give to his people and to David in particular. And so if you look at this, he reminds David that it was him who led Israel through the wilderness. It was him who called David from looking after the sheep to the place where he now is as king of all Israel, settled in his palace with his enemies defeated. And 
it's, I wonder if Paul was thinking of this passage, um, reminded me of the passage in Acts 17 when Paul is in Athens. And he sees all the myriads of temples that there are in Athens, including the one to the unknown God. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he made, needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so it's God saying, just want you to remember, I'm in charge here. I called you. I'm the one who chose you, David. And then with a huge smile on his face, it feels like to me, he gives three enormous promises to David. The first one we see here, I will make your name great like the greatest men of the earth. Not enough that Israel is at peace, Israel is united, David settled in Jerusalem with his palace and, and everything else. God is promising something for all eternity. I will make your name great like the greatest men of the earth. Not bad for starters. That probably would have done David enough. But then he goes on and says something else. I'm going to establish the kingdom of Israel in peace and security. I will provide a place for my people Israel, something they had never really had before, maybe one or two times during the time of the judges, but this was going to be the establishment of, um, of, of Israel. Not bad for a follow-up. So, so far, so good. But then the third promise is absolutely incredible. David has wanted to establish a house for God, and God says, actually, I'm going to establish a house for you. Now, of course, he doesn't mean a physical house in this sense. He's using the word house as we use it. Um, I was trying to think of an example. Isn't there a book by um, Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the house of, house of Usher? Anyway, it's the house of David, meaning his dynasty, his family, um, his, his descendants, if you like. And so we have this wonderful promise that he's going to raise up um, David's house and make it last forever. And within that, there are three things. First of all, he's going to establish, um, he's, he's, he's promised to David that he will give him a son who will build the temple. So he's saying to David, he's not rejected David's idea completely, and we'll come on to that again in a second. Even better, he promises that this son will not be rejected like God rejected Saul. In fact, his son will rule over an even more secure kingdom than David does, and we know that's true. Solomon's kingdom extended far wider and was far richer than David's ever was. And then, you know, just promise after promise after promise, and this is the most incredible one that we'll spend a little bit of time unpacking. David's throne will be established forever. Now, God just doesn't say, you know, your family will last for a very long time and you'll be terribly important and you'll be very, very famous you know, like the pharaohs of Egypt or like uh, um, in, in latter days, like Nebuchadnezzar, people we still talk about maybe, David's throne will be established forever. Now, when God some, says something like that, he doesn't use words lightly and he means what he says. And we're going to have a look at that as we, as we move on. And so, you know, if you look at um, verse 18, it says, King David went in and sat down before the Lord. Well, after all that, it's no wonder he had to sit down, I would say. Um, I, think, I think we all would. So, that's where we've got to, this amazing promise. It was David's idea that he wanted to um, build a house for God. 
but God has much bigger, much more exciting things in mind. And what can we learn from this? Well, I think the first thing is that David's ideas were not bad, but God's ideas were better. So, actually, there was nothing wrong with David's idea. He had the right idea. In fact, the very, uh, God agreed with him and promised him that his son Solomon would build the temple. And as we know, Solomon did build the temple. In fact, we read in, in 2 Chronicles 6, uh, verses 7 to 9, My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son Solomon, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. So it wasn't a bad idea, and it did happen, but God had a much better idea. And part of the issue was that it was the wrong time. God told David that his job was to unify and to lead Israel, to establish it, to destroy his enemies, as we've seen. And maybe building a huge temple would have distracted from that. Perhaps economically it would have cost too much. It was the wrong time. It was also, or David was also, the wrong man. Um, God had decided that um, David was a man too much of violence to build the temple. Conquering Israel's enemies would require David to shed a great deal of blood. And God didn't want a man of war to build his temple. In fact, again, we read later in, in 1 Chronicles, you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. This is 1 Chronicles 22 now. Sorry, we're sort of um, going forward a bit. You'll need your finger in about five different places. Um, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9, you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, and his name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So it was the wrong time. David, as a man of violence, was... was, um, was the wrong man. And, you know, sometimes when God says no to us about an idea or a vision that we've had, um, we can take it pretty hard. We can think it was a stupid idea or that somehow perhaps we've lost, lost touch with God, uh, with what he really wants, that we failed or we've taken some fatal wrong turning perhaps in our relationship with God and that God has rejected us. But more often than not, I think, God is saying that he has something even greater for us something more important that he wants us to do now, something which is more suited to our talents and our abilities in the end right now. Um, but I think there's, there's one thing that we have to uh, see in this that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have good ideas and we shouldn't go for them. And, and I think this is important. David hasn't waited around. He did have this master plan to bring the ark up to um, establish temple worship. So he gets on with it. He doesn't even let the mishap over Uzzah uh, being, uh, being struck down and the, the ark being brought up in the wrong way. He doesn't let that deter him. He goes away, works out what he should have done, and then gets it right. And, he, uh, and, and you know, I think even when God does say no... That doesn't mean to say necessarily that we need to lose the vision that God has given us. And David never lost that vision for building the temple. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, we read that David did a huge amount of preparation work, um, gathering materials. He made detailed plans. I didn't realize until I looked at this just how much he did 
before, um, Sol- before he died, you know, and, and before Solomon actually got on with, uh, with doing it. So maybe God does give us a vision sometimes, and, and then he tells us that perhaps we're not the right person, but we can prepare uh, through prayer for somebody else to do it, or perhaps financially, and, and it really takes guts and humility to recognize that our vision is being fulfilled by somebody else, and even more, to do all we can to help see that vision fulfilled, even though we know that somebody else will perhaps get the credit, or, or that maybe it won't even be fulfilled in um, our lifetime. Now, I was trying to think of some famous examples, and there probably are, if I'd have bothered to think for a long time, about there probably are some famous examples of this happening, and you can tell me what they are afterwards. But, but the only example that came to my mind was my dad, so I'll tell you about my dad, if that's okay. Now, my dad as a young person in the 1920s, he was born in 1912, he attended a railway mission in Acton in West London, which I think is still there. And at that time, no less than 22 young people out of a membership of 50, went into mission work. And, and some of them became very well-known missionaries. One guy who was um, a guy called Len Moles, who was the head of WEC, which was the mission that C.T. Studd founded. Um, uh, my uncle went out uh, to Japan and became leader of the missionary society there. Um, so 22 people out of 50. I mean, that would be pretty amazing if that happened here, wouldn't it? But I, I, it must have been an incredible time of, of revival just in that little railway mission there. And, and I think he wondered when the call would come. I know he wondered when the call would come for him, but it, but it never did. So instead, he went into industry. I, I'm not even convinced he really ever enjoyed his job particularly. I think he, he talked to um, Elizabeth a bit when my mother passed away and sort of confessed as much. Um, but he went in, he did the work really well, I'm sure blessed a lot of people in the process, but it's also enabled him to provide a home for his nephews and nieces during the holidays because his uh, brother was out in Japan as a missionary, and in those days you didn't fly back, you came back on the boat, and so you didn't come back, basically, <laughs> except every few years. Um, he also enabled him to support evangelistic work um, at home and in Japan, both financially and practically, well into his early 80s. So he was not called to be that person, um, to do that exciting public thing. But he didn't lose the vision, and he did what God had called him to do. He enabled others, and he, he, he prepared for others to do that. So, that's the first thing. I think David's ideas were not bad. God's ideas were better. I think that's often the case. <laughs> Always the case, isn't it? Hopefully. Um, David's ideas also were relatively short-term, but God's were eternal. David wanted to build something material, something that would last maybe for a few hundred years, but God's idea was eternal. He wanted to do something through David that would last for absolutely ever. And what was that? Well, I I think you probably know, but we'll just unpack it a little bit. What does God really mean when he says his throne will be established forever? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There it is in verse 13. Well, if we read through the rest of the books of Samuel and Kings, we'll see that actually David's earthly house, his dynasty, lasted only for about 400 years. So he can't mean that. Um, Does that mean the promise wasn't fulfilled? No, of course it doesn't. And there's a few things to note. First of all, the promise has got two parts. The first part of the promise is that David's son, Solomon, as we now know, would build the temple and have his throne established, but there was also a warning with that, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. So the promise had a condition attached. And so we can see the end of David's dynasty, if you will, on earth, and uh, as part of God's discipline 
particularly over the idolatry which was rife at that time. But the second part of the promise, I think, is unconditional, isn't it? My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And, you know, I think we can see that purely at a physical level. Has God abandoned Israel? Well, I mean, some of you will be old enough, not like me, maybe, to remember the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. Absolutely incredible. Read that story, uh, book by, the fictional account of it by Leon Uris called Exodus. Very, very exciting. Um, you know, has God abandoned Israel? I don't think so. Another interesting fact. Did you know that there are 750 Nobel laureates Nobel Prize has been awarded since the Nobel Prize was established um, in the early 20th century. And do you know that one-fifth of those Nobel laureates are Jewish? That is absolutely incredible to me. And and that's in a world where the Jews number a fraction, I think it's 0.2% of the population, and yet they've got 20% of all the Nobel Prizes. And if you look in any field, I mean music, you know, which is my thing, how many famous Jewish violinists or pianists or, you know, there's, there's hundreds of them. God's people are still making their mark, and you've got to believe, haven't you, that God's still got his hand on that nation in, in, in some amazing way. And then spiritually, uh, we haven't got time for this really, but uh, Romans is quite clear and Paul is quite clear in Romans that God hasn't abandoned Israel either. And he says, all Israel will be saved for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So I think we can see that either from a, a heavenly or an earthly perspective, God hasn't abandoned Israel. But also, the promise to David has got two time frames. And like all prophecy, it's like a range of mountains. You sort of, a distance away, it looks like some huge range of mountains. You come up a little bit further and you see there's some foothills in, in, in the near, uh, you know, fairly near as it were, and then the big mountains much, much further away than you realize they were. And this is what we see here. So we've got a prophecy here about David's throne in the um, immediate, but we've also got uh, the mountain ranges where God has the eternal in view. And if you look at the parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles 17, uh, it, it reads like this. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Sounds a bit like Jesus to me. And of course, you know, it, it is Jesus. Um, note those words, I will set him over my house and over my kingdom. So he's going to rule over God's house and God's kingdom. It's the Lord Jesus. And there's loads of places in the New Testament and are where um, we see this uh, reference to uh, David be, being fulfilled. And I'll, I'll, you know, there's several. I mentioned one. If we look in Hebrews um, chapter 1 and in verse 5 there, um, actually this verse itself is cited where it says in verse 13 there in in 1 Chronicles, I will be his father and he will be my son. And of course, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is quite clear that that verse is talking about Jesus. So while David's thinking was clearly earthbound, God had a much larger perspective. David was concerned about Israel here and now, and God was concerned about the salvation of the whole world. So Absolutely incredible. And I think the third thing, uh, and we need to hurry up a bit, but God wanted to bless God. Sorry, David wanted to bless God. But much more importantly, God wanted to bless David. 
David clearly wants to bless God by building him a house. It's a good thing. God agrees it's a good thing. But God turns it round and he says, I've chosen you. I've been with you. I've defeated your enemies. I'm going to do even more. I'm going to build you a house. You thought you were going to bless me, David, but you're wrong. I'm going to bless you even more abundantly than you can imagine. And I think David needed that at this time. I mean, we, we can speculate, but, but I, wonder if, I wonder where David was. Maybe he was a bit scared of God because of what went wrong with the ark. Maybe he thought if he established the temple, God would be pleased with him. But whatever it was, I think God is clearly saying, thanks for the offer, but you're accepted without this. You are where you are because I've chosen you, not because I need you to do something for me. When I want a temple, I'll ask for one. In the meantime, my calling of you is eternal and it won't change whatever you do and whatever happens. So God was showing, I think, and showing to David just how everything is of grace. And people who say that the Old Testament is all about judgment and there's no grace in there, I'm sorry. It's, it's in every, well, maybe not every chapter, but, you know, it, it's there as, as, as a thread all the way through the Old Testament. God's grace, God's calling, um, the unmerited favor that he just pours out on, on his people for, for no other reason than he wants to, uh, wants to bless us. And, and we know that, don't we, as Christians? We might think that it was our idea to ask God uh, to save us, to ask Jesus into our hearts. It wasn't. It was God's idea, and he chose us. And that gives us enormous security when sometimes we wonder where he is or, or, or we feel that we're not good enough. It's God's idea, and it's God that reaches out to us. So we've sort of gone on far too long there, which is a shame because the second bit's really good. So I'm just going to keep going. I'm sorry about that. Um, what happens? David's response. First of all, David offers a humble prayer of praise. And, and I, I mean, it's lovely. Just look at some of these phrases. Who am I? What is my family? Um, you know, is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? Notice how he used the term sovereign Lord. Yahweh um, Adonai. Is, is, is really praising God there and understanding God's greatness and his God's majesty. Um, and, and look at the fact that he's sitting, he, he goes in and he sits before the Lord. He doesn't prostrate himself. Um, he doesn't stand like this in prayer, as, as would be the, uh, the Jewish custom. Um, he sits as he might with a friend. There's something very intimate about that, it, it, uh, it, it seems to me. But also a response of, uh, of great humility. What a marvelous prayer of praise that is. And then, the really important thing, David claims the promise that God has given me, and this is the bit that when I read this all those years ago, really stuck out to me, verses 25 to 28, and now Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house, do as you've promised. It's almost a challenge, isn't it, when you read it? It's a humble one. But he's saying to God, I've seen this promise that you've given me, all these promises. Please make sure that you do them. He's not saying it in an arrogant way. He's saying it in a way which claims that promise of faith. And then if you look at verse 28, um, O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you've promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant. Do it, Lord. And, and I think, you know, that was the thing that really stuck out when I, when I read that. And I wrote in my Bible at the time, claim all God's promises like this. And, and that's exactly what we need, need to do. And what David understands is that it brings glory to God for people to see God keeping his promises. 
A wonderful quote from uh, the old Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who said, this is God's great end, God's great purpose in all his dealings with his people, that he may be seen, that God may be seen to be glorified. Um, Have a look in the Old Testament uh, on the web or in a Bible, you know, concordance or something. 77 times in the Old Testament, um, there's a phrase which is something like, so that they shall know that I am the Lord. And it's so important that, that, that people see God keeping his promises, and that brings real glory. So David was right to pray that God would do it. And then the other thing that David understood was that when God promises something, he means us to keep him to his word. So when David says, do as you've promised, he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. To find a promise in, in the word, to claim the promise that God has given him with all the daring and all the faith and, and, and almost all the um, cheek that, that, that we can muster just to say to God, do as you've promised, God. So, you know, how can we pray like this? Uh, if, if we really believe that this is a marvellous model prayer, then how can we do this? Well, I think there's, again, three things here. First of all, David thanked God for all that he'd done, and he remembered all that God had done. And that's so important. We need to remember what God has done. We haven't got time to look at Psalm 78 or Psalm 106, but if you look at those Psalms which talk about the history of Israel and how they um, wandered away from God and came back and wandered away from God and came back, what did they do wrong every time? They forgot God. They stopped remembering. Um, Psalm 106, verse 7, they did not remember his many kindnesses. Verse 13, they soon forgot what he had done. Verse 21, they forgot the God who saved them. Now, I mean, I'm preaching to myself now, so thanks for coming. But um, (laughs) this is so important because I'm rubbish at this. Um, Remembering what God has done. And I think we all need to find strategies, whether it's writing it down or having a journal, whatever it may be so that we remember continually what God has done when it seems like God's not doing anything. There's so much that we can give him thanks for. The second thing that David did was he understood God's will. Now, it was fairly straightforward for him because God had told him quite plainly through um, Nathan at this point, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts to reveal what God's word um, says to us. And I wonder how much time we really spend seeking God in prayer and reading his word to see what God is really saying to us. And I wonder if you've experienced those times when you're reading and praying and God clearly shows you a word from himself in the Bible and you know it's for you. And there are loads of promises in the Bible. Some of them are, are, are we know for all of us. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for example. But sometimes there are those special promises in, in God's word that we really feel apply to us. And I, I would urge you, it's, it's been a real help to me Again, sometimes I struggle to remember them, but it's been a real help to me when I've been able to find those promises and hold on to them, uh, sometimes when it doesn't seem like they're going to happen. And the third thing that David did was he persevered in claiming God's promises, as we've seen. And nothing glorifies God more than us finding those promises and then claiming them for ourselves. And nothing honors him less than us failing to claim and believe the promises that he's given, even when they're self-evident. And again, I I say this mostly to myself. (laughs) Um, There's a great book called The Making of the Man of God by um, Alan Redpath, who was a a famous preacher, Keswick preacher of 
yesteryear, and he says this on this passage. David was brought to a place where he really began to claim God's promises for himself personally. There is nothing your soul can ever need but is covered by a promise from the word of God. But you will never have even one of them until you rest in the Lord and claim them. He wants to teach you in the face of his negative answer sometimes, we've seen that, to learn to make your own every, every possible promise in the book. And, and I think, you know, if, if we don't take too many things away from tonight, that, that to me is, is the most important thing. God gave David some fantastic promises. And the first thing that David did was he went in before the Lord, and he reminded God of what those promises were. And he held on to them, and he claimed them in faith. And there must have been times, if you, you know, read the rest of 2 Samuel and, and the rest of the life of David, there were some times when he, when he must have thought God had got it completely wrong. Um, you know, when Absalom betrayed him, and, and, and so many things that, that, that went wrong. And yet, I'm sure at all times he came back to this promise uh, and held it before the Lord. And that was one of the things that, uh, that helped him uh, through. And it, it does seem to me that, you know, I, I love this passage. I think it's one of the best in the whole of the Old Testament. It's got an enormous amount to teach us about God and his grace and how he calls us to respond. Um, but above all, it teaches us how to pray and how to claim those promises. And I think that that above else, above all else, is at the heart of living as a Christian, living a Victorian Christian, a victorious, Victorian? Victorious Christian life, and what brings most glory to God in the end. Amen.